You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of the murder of Grace Livingston. Just a little heads up to say that this episode was originally aired as a Patreon-exclusive episode in August of 2019, and as such, it's a little different from the usual true crime stories you hear on Mens Rea. Namely, there isn't a court case to focus on. The reason why will become clear as the story unfolds. If you'd like to hear more content like this episode, don't forget to check out Mens Rea over on Patreon. And now, onto the show. Jim Livingston met Grace Vernon in the 60s in Dundalk, where she was from. Jim was from Monaghan, but was working in the town. He joined the civil service at 18 and worked for the Revenue Commissioners, the Irish Taxation Service. The couple married in October of 1968. First, the couple lived in Whitehall, then they moved to Malahide, then out to Castle Bar, before returning to Malahide in North County Dublin. They had two children, Tara and Connor. The family moved into the Moorings, a new estate adjacent to their last home in the town when it was first built in 1976. By 1992, Jim was a senior inspector in the Special Inquiry Branch in Revenue, which was the section involved in identifying and going after people who had evaded taxes. In fact, he ran the section. They were not well-liked as a rule, especially by the criminal element in Ireland. Grace stayed at home. She and her husband were very much into the outdoors. They went walking and spent a lot of time in nature. Jim was an avid shooter and gun enthusiast, and was a member of the Army Reserve. Grace was more into horticulture. She had a greenhouse and took part in flower arranging in both Port Marnock and Malahide. In 1992, their daughter Tara was 22 and living in Paris, working as an accountant. Connor was in college, but was working in the city centre, waiting to repeat a term. The seaside village of Malahide is an affluent area of North County Dublin. It was back in 1992, and perhaps it's even more so today. The housing estate that Jim and Grace lived in was just a ten-minute walk from the village proper and had been built with entirely detached houses, a sure sign of modernity and financial security. That said, each of the homes looks just like the next. When they were built, they had two windows on the top floor, and rather than a matching pair on the ground floor, one quarter of the floor space was given over to a garage to house family cars. As time went on, though, it seemed that the homeowners uniformly decided that a second reception room was more useful, and the garages were converted. Eventually, they would all have the same small extension to the front to include a porch too. Each house has been upgraded and changed, and yet, still today, they all look more or less the same. Number 37, the moorings, was no different. Jim and Grace had done the garage conversion themselves, 
and added a small glass porch entryway too. The left half of the sloping front garden was taken up by a driveway, and things were neat and tidy as you would expect from a middle-class suburb. The 7th of December was a day much like any other for the Livingston family. It was cold, and a sea fog had rolled in. Grace was first up and made breakfast for James and their son. The couple had a quick chat about arrangements for that evening. They were attending an anniversary mass for Jim's brother, Father Padder Livingston, out in Castle Blaney, County Monaghan. It was agreed that Jim would leave work a few minutes early and Grace would have dinner ready for him when he got in so that they could leave at six. Jim and Connor left the house at 8.25am and on the drive into town they picked up a colleague of Jim's, Art O'Connor, who lived on the far side of the village. The men dropped Connor off in O'Connell Street and then they headed to their own offices in Satanta House, Nassau Street. Grace was, as usual, on her own in the house that day, and she went about her routine as normal. She went to nine o'clock mass in the village, and then went to the shops for some groceries. She arrived home at about 11.45, stopping to say hello to her neighbour in number 38, Bernard Owens, who was a Garda. A few hours later, a neighbour from across the road, Nurse Anne Watchhorn, called over and the two women stood chatting in the porch for about 20 minutes. Anne went back home at about ten past two. Meanwhile, Jim was working. He and Art left town at about 5pm and drove straight to Art's home, where he was dropped at around quarter to six. It was a six or seven minute drive to the Livingstons from there. When Jim pulled up to the house, it was in darkness. Sunset had been over an hour before and the hall light hadn't been switched on. It was pitch black. Grace's car was parked in the driveway as usual, but both doors at the front of the house were locked, and he wasn't greeted by the family dog as usual. When he made his way into the kitchen where he expected to find his wife and his dinner waiting for him, all he found was darkness and an abandoned dustpan and brush. There was no sign of any cooking going on, just the cleaning stuff left half done. So Jim made his way up to the main bedroom. On his way up, he was alarmed to see that one of his rifles was propped in the hallway. Again, all the lights were off, and when he looked into the room, he saw his wife in the dim light. She was lying across their bed, face down, and it looked like she'd thrown up. Thinking she'd taken ill, Jim turned on the light and made his way in, but quickly he saw that what he had thought was vomit on the bed was actually blood. It looked like Grace had been hit over the head and she wasn't responding. Her hands and feet were wrapped with a thick black tape, and more was wrapped over her mouth. Jim ran across the road, knocking for Anne, the nurse, to come and help, but there was no answer. He knocked next door to her at another neighbour's, who also happened to be a nurse, and asked her son to send her over quickly. There was an emergency, and his wife was seriously hurt. Then, Jim ran back to the house and rang 999, asking for an ambulance. It was two minutes to six. Gardie and Malahide Station were notified of the situation and made their way the short distance from the station to the Livingston house. Margaret Murphy, the neighbour, arrived and went upstairs to where Grace lay on the bed. She knew immediately that Mrs. Livingston was dead, but told Jim that she could feel a faint heartbeat 
to try and comfort Jim, who was in shock. She took a look at the scenario in front of her. Mrs. Livingston was still somewhat warm to the touch. The room was warm. There was a large wound on Grace's head, though the bleeding seemed to have stopped, and blood was drying and congealing on the bedsheets. There was also a twenty-two rifle propped upright in the upstairs hallway of the house. At quarter past six, Detective Garda Frank Gunn and Garda Catherine Moran arrived at the home, just as clergyman and friend of the family John Keegan was arriving to administer the last rites to Grace. The Gardy asked Margaret to contact the Livingston family doctor, Barry Moodley, to call out an order to pronounce the death. Jim then told the Gardy about how he had found his wife, and told them that he had removed some of the tape from her body when he and Margaret returned to the house. He also said that another one of his shotguns was missing from the bedroom closet. Dr. Moodley arrived at 6.35 and went straight up to the main bedroom. He saw that there was a gunshot wound to the base of Grace's skull and noted that she was still slightly warm to the touch. When asked by Detective Garda Gunn what he thought the time of Mrs. Livingston's death might be, Dr. Moodley told him that in his professional opinion, Grace had been dead for about two hours. At the mention of a gunshot wound, Jim asked the Garda present if they could get the smell of a firearm that had been discharged, but neither Garda could detect it. Mr. Livingston also asked Garda Gunn to check his bedside locker to see if his antique forty-five revolver was still in there. It was. All the windows and doors in the house were checked. The window in Connor's bedroom was open, but none of the other doors or windows showed signs of being forced. Everything else was closed up against the cold of the day. There was a hammer found on Connor's bed. While Garda Moran began to take note of each of the people who had entered the house since Jim arrived home, Jim himself was taken to Malahide Garda Station, where he gave a voluntary statement about his day. He described every detail of his movements up until he discovered his wife's body that night. He handed over the clothing he had been wearing in order to test for gunshot residue and other forensic evidence. He told them about some of the cases he was working on, including one involving oil smuggling and another that was related to bogus non-resident bank accounts. He also informed Gardy that he had investigated known or suspected members of the IRA for tax evasion, and gave a list of names of people he'd come across through work who might want to harm him or his family, or simply have hard feelings about him. Jim spent eight hours in Malahide Garda Station that night. Meanwhile, Gardy began a detailed search of his home, which would last a full five days and involve searches of the house and garden, as well as the surrounding areas. By half eight that evening, members of the Technical Bureau had arrived to carry out forensic examinations. Photographs were taken, and fingerprints and ballistic experts were called out. Dr. John Harbison, the chief state pathologist, arrived at half eleven and began his examination. He took the room temperature and the temperature of Grace Livingston's body. He determined that, given his results, Mrs. Livingston had died somewhere around 6pm. This was at odds with what the first doctor on the scene had thought, and with Jim's timeline, 
and would set the trajectory of the Garda investigation on a course that would prove disastrous. The black electrical tape was collected by the Garda and tested for fingerprints. Exclusionary prints had been taken from everyone who was in the house that night, and yet there were some markings which did not match any of those people. An obvious fingerprint in the middle of the tape on the adhesive side made up part of an unidentified set of fingerprints on both the outer and inner side of the tape used to bind Mrs. Livingston. It seemed likely that whoever left this mark had been the one to apply the tape in the first place. Jim Livingston's fingerprints were also found on parts of the tape. What was not found was the role that the tape had come from. Nothing in the house matched it, and nothing was found in the surrounding area. When Grace's body was examined in more detail, a cut to her face was found. It was a distinctive wound to the side of the bridge of her nose, and was thought to have occurred when she was struck or punched in the face, before she was shot. There was a mark left at the side of the cut, indicating that whoever had hit Mrs. Livingston was wearing a ring which could have helped identify the killer, but the ring that made that mark was never found. In fact, it was never really looked for. Satanta House was searched thoroughly. Every place that Jim Livingston had access to was gone through, including lockers and cupboards. His colleagues were questioned closely about Jim's activities in the office that day. He'd been there all day, they confirmed, but the close police questioning and searches had them suspicious of their colleague. The other employees in the revenue office began to put distance between themselves and who they now thought was a suspected murderer. Pillows on Mr. and Mrs. Livingston's bed were also examined. There were, for some reason, two extra pillows on the bed having come from their son's room. One of these pillows tested positive, strongly, for gunshot residue. But there was no burn or scorch marks or any other visible damage to the pillow. Initially, investigators thought that perhaps it had been used to muffle the sound of the shot. But detectives from the ballistic section later said that this was unlikely due to the lack of markings or damage to the pillow. Then it was suggested that perhaps whoever had shot Grace Livingston had dropped the firearm onto the bed after killing her, and that that was how the gunshot residue was deposited. This seems more likely. The shotgun that Mr. Livingston had told police was missing from his bedroom wardrobe was discovered in a shrub in the front of the garden. It was the one that had been used to kill Grace. There were no fingerprints recovered from it. There were a number of firearms present in the building. Three shotguns, two twenty-two rifles, one forty-five revolver, an air pistol and a seventy-seven rifle. Jim was a gun enthusiast, a member of the Army Reserve, and often went shooting. At least two of the guns he owned were not able to be shot, the forty-five revolver and the air gun, and both of these were held illegally. This interest in guns made the Gardi suspicious of Jim. But in the end, the matter of the unlicensed firearms was dealt with in the district court, and Mr. Livingston paid a fine of £300. In March of 1993, Jim Livingston was arrested for possession of a firearm with intent to endanger life. He was brought to Swords Garda Station for questioning 
but was released without charge a few hours later. But reputational damage was done. There had been cameras and reporters waiting outside his home to record the arrest, and footage of Jim being led from the house in handcuffs was broadcast on the evening news. A number of statements were taken from people who were in the neighbourhood on the afternoon of the 7th. Two were from a group of schoolgirls who had stood at the top of the moorings chatting before they each headed home after school. It was about half past four. These two girls, Ina Brennan and Hilary Maguire, told police that they had seen a strange young man walking in the area that afternoon. He'd come up as if he was walking from the main road along the coast and had walked towards them before turning into the cul-de-sac where the Livingstons' house was. Both girls described a young man, 19 or 20 years old. He was tall with long, mousy-coloured hair and was wearing a tan or fawn trench coat and heavy black boots. Aina lived at the far end of the cul-de-sac and after leaving her friends, she walked past the young man she had seen. It was somewhere outside number 39, 40 or 41, she said, and after she passed him, she'd look back behind her and the man was gone. She assumed that he'd gone into one of the houses back there. On the 8th of December, Philip McGivney, a gardener who had been working at number 27 the day of Grace's death, called into the house while Gardee were carrying out their searches. He told the Gardee that he'd seen someone as he was leaving the road the night before. He'd finished his work when it was dark. He'd no watch to tell the time. He'd gotten his things together and left. He pulled his van further into the cul-de-sac to turn and had actually used the drive of number 37 to do that. As his car and its lights were pointed towards the house, he'd seen the figure of a man at the glass porch of the house. The front door was open and the man was bending down to pick up a potted plant. Mr. McGivney thought that it might be a small yucca. There was indeed a yucca plant in the Livingstone's garden. Mr. McGivney said that the man he saw was in his early twenties, with long, collar-length hair and of a thin build. He saw the man walk into the house. He was sure that there was no car in the driveway because he could see clearly into the porch and the house beyond. Mr. McGivney thought that he had gotten back to his own home at about twenty to five that evening, and he'd seen the news of Grace's murder on the television later that night. Two women living on the road also reported to Gardie that that afternoon they'd heard a loud noise coming from the direction of the Livingstons' house. One of them put this noise at half four or so, and the other wasn't so sure. It could have been before half two or after four, though she didn't remember it being dark when she noticed the noise. Another woman who lived on the road parallel to the moorings and whose garden backed onto the gardens of people who lived across from number 37 reported hearing a loud noise also. She had been out checking her washing on the line after watching Emmerdale, which finished at half four, when she heard a loud bang. She recalled it clearly because she had been annoyed that fireworks were still being set off that long after Halloween. Suspicious cars were also seen in the area that evening. 
In mid-January 1993, a man contacted the Gardaí at Malahide to report that between 4 and 5 on the 7th of December, he'd been driving along the Malahide Road towards the village from the direction of town. He came to a crossroads, and just as he was taking a left there, towards the town of Swords, another driver cut him off. The man was driving erratically, and was apparently laughing and smirking to himself and bobbing his head from side to side. The witness said he was maybe in his mid-thirties, with collar-length black hair. The man who came forward said he had no choice but to follow the vehicle down the Swords Road, but when they came to a roundabout, this other car, an old, small red thing, similar to an Opal Cadet or a little Fiat, that car went the wrong way around the roundabout. The witness decided to follow the car at this point, away from his own destination because of how badly the other man was driving, and he followed them all the way up to Belbriggan. He gave the guardie a partial number plate of the vehicle, but he'd either misremembered or it was a false plate, as nothing ever came of it, and no one was identified. Another suspicious car and driver was spotted by a man who was sitting in his car, near the beachfront parking lot on the coast road, near to the pedestrian entrance up to the estate where the Livingstons lived. He told Gardie that he saw a young man run up and jump a fence to get into the car park. This young man then got into a small red car and drove away at speed, and hit a number of deep potholes in his rush. He was heading towards Malahide Village, and this sighting was consistent in time with the sighting of a car driving erratically on the other side of Malahide. The detective sergeant at Malahide received this information through a phone call from the man, but this witness was known to the sergeant, and he thought him unreliable. Little stock was put into this sighting. The initial investigation into the murder of Grace Livingston, despite having a main suspect in mind, stalled. It continued to receive media attention, however, which seemed to reflect Garda's suspicions. The husband did it. In the aftermath of the murder, the IRA released a formal statement denying responsibility for the killing of Grace Livingston, and it didn't seem like something that they would do anyway. The IRA had a policy of not targeting servants of the state, though they didn't always follow this. But there was no clear motive or logic to the idea that the IRA had been involved. Nothing was heard from the various criminal gangs operating in the country at the time, though, and they had form for targeting civil servants when they were displeased. It still didn't explain why Jim Livingston's wife would be targeted rather than himself, though. In late August 1993, the case was sent for review by Senior Gardee, headed by Tom Connolly, who wrote about the investigation in his book Detective, A Life Upholding the Law. The original investigators were adamant that because of the time of death given by Dr. Harbison, Jim Livingston was responsible for his wife's death. But then-Detective Superintendent Connolly was determined to start again, to look at everything and do as thorough a review as was possible in order to keep the case alive. There were a number of shortcomings in the investigation discovered. Door-to-door inquiries and questionnaires usually handed out during these operations did not take place in the days following the murder. Dr. Moodley was contacted, and he said that he was quite sure of his opinion on the time of death, 
despite what Dr. Harbison had concluded. On the other hand, when Dr. Harbison was questioned about the GP's conclusion, he responded that he wouldn't argue with it. A number of tests were also carried out relating to what was possible for the witnesses that night to have observed relating to the gunshot that killed Mrs. Livingston. Firstly, the witnesses were asked to stand where they were when they had heard the loud noise that afternoon, and a gun was shot in the Livingston's bedroom. All reported that they could hear it, and more importantly, all reported that it was similar to the noise that they had heard the night Grace died. Another test carried out involved checking how long a smell could be discerned in the Livingston's bedroom after the discharge of a weapon. A gun was shot and a number of witnesses were asked to say whether they could smell the discharged firearm. Even an hour and a half afterwards, they all could. An officer from the Forensic Science Laboratory also entered the room at various points wearing sterile suits, which were later tested to see if gunshot residue would adhere to it from the air in the room. It did. According to this review, Jim Livingston should no longer be considered a viable suspect in the murder of Grace. She had died hours before he arrived home. There was no gunshot residue on his clothing, and there were unidentified fingerprints found on the tape binding Grace's hands and legs. In May of 1994, reconstructions of the crime, including the sightings of the young man and the suspicious cars, were shown on RTE's Crimeline program. The man who had been in the car park the day of the murder got in touch, and he gave a formal statement given the first time he had contacted the guardie, he was considered unreliable. A woman also came forward with information about a car she had seen at the roundabout in Swords, which was driving erratically that evening. This small, old, red or orange car had gone the wrong way around the roundabout, causing her to brake hard and the truck behind her to blow its horn. Another man came forward saying that he had picked up a hitchhiker the following evening when he was driving from Limerick to Dublin. The man was young, about 20, wearing a tan coat and black boots and had an English or Scottish accent. The young man said he had hitched overnight from Dublin down to Limerick and was on his way back up. The witness thought that the young man's mood changed when the news came on and the murder of Mrs. Livingston was discussed. The driver became suspicious and uncomfortable with the young man in his car and dropped him in Ross Cray, saying he was going no further. This young man was eventually tracked down and remembered hitching the lift, though he denied anything to do with Mrs. Livingston's murder. It turned out that he had been seeing a girl whose sister lived not far away from the Livingstons in the moorings. His prints were taken, but they did not match the unknown set from the tape. And so, despite the thorough review and the new witnesses coming forward, no further progress was made on the case. It stalled once more and has since remained decidedly cold. That didn't stop the press speculating on the horrific murder that happened in a quiet middle-class seaside town though, and it didn't stop them bringing up the only man that had been considered a suspect by Gardee, James Livingston. This cloud of suspicion followed Jim Livingston throughout the 90s and resulted in him and his children taking a court case which began in the High Court in April of 2008. 
the Livingstons were suing the Gardi for wrongful arrest in relation to the gun charges and for slander. It was stated in front of the High Court that the Gardi had not known the extent of the Livingstons' gun collection until after the murder investigation was underway, that Jim Livingston had deliberately misled Gardi and had a quote-unquote attitude problem. But this wasn't the case. Gardi had known about all eight guns from the start of their investigation and Livingston alleged that they had decided to arrest him in such a public manner because of their unfounded suspicion of him. The arrest was wrongful, completely unwarranted, he said, and they had slandered him. Much of the first five days of the hearing were taken up with the opening statement on behalf of the Livingstons, saying that the Gardaí owed a duty of care to members of the public, and that they had had an irrational fixation on Mr Livingston to the detriment of their investigation. But not everything the court heard was in the Livingstons' favour. A claim was presented that Jim had once pointed a gun at a colleague, and also that during the course of the investigation, he had turned up at Malahide Garda Station with the social security numbers and home addresses of three Gardaí involved in the case. The High Court was further told that the Gardaí had told Mr Livingston that his son was on drugs, his daughter was off whoring herself in France, and that he was a failure at his own work. But as the case proceeded, and just before the Garda who had headed up the review of the case in 1994, Tom Connolly, was about to take the stand for Mr Livingston's side, the case was settled out of court. Gardi also issued a statement. It said, quote, Ungarda Shiakana confirms that at no stage has it recommended to the DPP that Mr Livingston be prosecuted for the murder of his wife. Notwithstanding the diligent and exhaustive investigations carried out in this matter, Ungarda Shiakana can confirm that James Livingston is entitled to the full and unreserved presumption of innocence. End quote. Livingston and his two children told the press on the court steps that they were pleased with the result, but that their main concern was finding out who had killed Grace. In 2016, the new Garda cold case unit reviewed Grace's case, but there has been no significant developments since then. Jim Livingston still lives in Malahide, though no longer at the moorings. He believes that his wife was murdered on the orders of a member of the IRA that he was investigating for cross-border dealings. He told the Sunday Independent that he had actually once seen the man in a pub in Monaghan and had written to him, though he never heard back. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. Don't forget, if you like us, subscribe and leave a review. Better yet, tell a friend. That really is the easiest way to support your favourite podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at mensreapod or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Emer Ryan, Margarita O'Regan-Dean, Sean Patrick Allen, Ashley, Sheila Hanley, Rachel Hanlon, Christina Blau, Michelle Gagan, and Sarah Smith. Thank you so much, you guys. Your support means the absolute world to me, and I appreciate it so, so much. Patrons get ad-free and early release episodes, as well as bonus content just like this one, and nifty merch. I hope you'll check it out. I want to take a moment to thank each and every one of you for supporting the show this year. 
whether that be through listening, sharing on social media, sending in such lovely compliments and case suggestions, or support through Patreon. You all have made this such a phenomenal year, from being able to meet people at the True Crime Podcast Festival in Chicago, to ending up on stage with the My Favourite Murder Ladies in the Borgosh Theatre. Every single one of you has made a huge and tangible impact on the show, and my life, and I want to thank you all sincerely for that. I want to wish you all a wonderful holiday season, whether you celebrate Christmas, Solstice, Kwanzaa, Hanukkah, or Festivus for the rest of us, and so many best wishes for the next year and for the decade to come. Bring on the 20s. Our theme music is Song The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This podcast was researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. hosts of the Fresh Hell podcast. I'm Annie in Boston, Massachusetts. And I'm Johanna in Vienna, Austria. Join us every Wednesday for a new terrible story. I focus mostly on cases in the United States and not just true crime like the terrifying axe murders on Smutty Nose Island, but also shocking stories like the New Jersey shark attacks of 1916. And I love to tell you about more obscure European cases. And let me tell you, Germany has produced more cannibals than one would think. So if you're a fan of true crime, but you also enjoy terrible stories of all sorts, give us a listen. We'll tell you everything you need to know and then some. Come find Fresh Hell Podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Auf Wiedersehen. Hope to see you soon. Mm-hmm.